Well, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 19. John 19, we're going to start in verse 16 this afternoon. And uh, while you get settled in, I just want to pray for our time in the Word uh, together. Father God, we ask that you would help us uh, as we read through and meditate on this text, Lord, to uh, grasp the gravity of what happened on the cross. God, and we, we know that even that request is somewhat foolish. God, that we will never fully understand what you have done to your son or through your son for us. But God, we do ask that even for those who've been familiar with this text, this season, this story, this message for many years, Lord, that you would just in a fresh way open up our, our hearts to meditate on, to reflect, to receive what truly is good news. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bible, starting in verse 16, actually about halfway through verse 16, I'm going to read the first couple verses. It says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Those few verses summarize and introduce for us what, are, what is undoubtedly the most significant event in all of human history. Not only from the standpoint of the Christian, but even from secular scholars, historians, they recognize that, that this single event, Jesus on the cross, has to be the single most pivotal, pivotal event in shaping our, our current world. There is nothing more consequential. And it's strange, isn't it? That the world that you and I live in would be oriented around, shaped by, affected by so, so gruesome and dark a thing. I mean, there are some, there are some really beautiful moments in human history that we, we would be right, I think, to usher, usher forward and say, well, maybe this has been more consequential. Maybe this has been more, more transformative. Why, why can't one of those be the thing that we look at and say, that's the thing that just affects everything about who we are and the world we live in? Why not the discovery of the atom, the emancipation of slaves, the eradication of diseases, why can't one of these things be the things that we look at and say, that's it. In order to understand everything else, you've got to understand that thing. But it's not. Not because people haven't tried, obviously. Even among Christians, there are uh, impulses that we have to take our focus off of this point in human history, to take the focus of Christianity even away from this gruesome reality, this ugly thing that is the cross. We want to turn the message of the gospel into something much more positive, don't we? A message of, of universal love, of, of societal improvement, of self-acceptance. Those, those 
are, are, are catchy summarizations of the gospel, aren't they? Those are things that we're drawn to and attracted to. And while surely the message of Christianity is a message of God's unending, unyielding love for his creatures, and yes, the gospel should lead to us having an effect on those around us as we pursue uh, justice and mercy and and we enact kindness for one another and for our neighbors, And, and yes, while the Bible does teach that all people are, are valuable and have worth and dignity and respect because they are made in the image of God, yet, according to the Bible, at the center of all of those beautiful truths is a cross. The message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel hinges on the message of the cross. And it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it is the word of the cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those are kind of the two options. The cross is either foolishness or it is power. And Paul is saying, for us who are being saved, there's only one option. We cannot look at the cross as foolishness. We have to look at this gruesome, ugly reality and say, there is power. He would go on to say to the Corinthians that that when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't bring worldly insights. I did not bring the things that you wanted to hear but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and all of us, all of it, you know, like lots of people would go, yeah, that's fine, let's talk about Jesus and Paul would not stop there. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You cannot understand Jesus Christ outside of the cross. You cannot understand the message of the gospel and the message of the Bible outside of not just the person of Jesus Christ, Christ, but the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going through the gospel of Luke right now and Jesus is saying lots of things and he's teaching lots of things and he's showing lots of, lots of things. All of those things are not fully understood unless they are understood in light of that Christ, that teacher, that prophet crucified. This is all the more strange because we know, we understand that the cross was not only an instrument of torture, but an instrument of shame. It was meant to be embarrassing. It was meant to be isolating and humiliating. And there's good evidence that not only was was it a humiliating thing for the one being crucified, it is in some ways humiliating for those who are doing the crucifixion. We We have... a a precious few amount of like resources and information to know actually what happened in crucifixions. The Romans didn't even want to talk about it. It was so ugly, so gruesome, so humiliating. The ones who were doing it were kind of like doing it over over to the side. They They didn't want to kind of reflect. We just don't have a lot of information because it was so grotesque. So why would the earliest Christians who knew not only what crucifixion was in its grossness, but also what it meant. Why would they so clearly and so relentlessly insist that their hope was connected to the cross? I think in the passage that we're going to go through right now, this gospel message comes forward 
in what the cross, not just what happened there, but what it meant for us. It's not only the the events of the cross, but the meaning of the cross in which we find our hope and our joy and our salvation. There's a lot going on in the text that we're about to walk through, and I'm just going to go ahead and recognize we're not going to be able to address all of it. So what I want to just, just highlight is, is five things, five uh, things that I, I just want us to, to highlight and to kind of meditate on together to draw our hearts up to really understand what is going on in this event that we celebrate on Good Friday. So five kind of meditations for you this morning as we look at the cross of Christ and our crucified King. The first thing I want you to notice is his kingship. Starting in verse 19, John tells us that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where uh, Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written uh, in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. If you're familiar with the story and the verses that come before this passage, you may recall that Pilate actually seemed to have intention to release Jesus. He wasn't entirely convinced that Jesus was guilty of what he was, had been accused of. But the the Jewish leaders and the mob that they had riled up had kind of forced Pilate's hand because in in light of Jesus' reputation as the king of the Jews, basically this claim to kingship offered a, a, a kind of an implied competitor to Pilate's boss, who was Caesar. And so Pilate had no option but to deal with implied competitors to the throne. So Pilate handed him over to be crucified just as the crowd demanded. Often the accused in a crucifixion would carry as almost a sign around their neck the list of the charges against them. And it's not unreasonable to assume that this this plaque was something like the charges against Jesus. It was meant to both be a part of the ongoing humiliation and degradation of the Lord Jesus, but also a kind of mockery to the Jewish leaders who Pilate did not really have a good relationship with. And so the leaders object to this inscription because the, what it said was, this is the king of the Jews. It didn't say this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. It wasn't really a list of charges. It was almost more uh, of a title that is given. And Pilate refuses, insisting rather on the title than the accusation. We're meant to see this as Pilate kind of sticking it to the Jewish leaders. But John wants us to see it ironically. Pilate is acting out of spite, but in doing so, he becomes kind of an accidental truth teller. He wants us to see, John does, that Pilate has no idea what he's actually saying, and yet he's right on the money. That this man being crucified, rejected, isolated, shamed, was in fact the king of the Jews. 
He was, in fact, who the reputation said he was, who his own claims had made himself out to be. This was the king of the Jews. And John is trying to say, this is not just some kind of political maneuvering. This is is kind of an accidental prophecy, an accidental truth-telling that is happening in the crucifixion. The man raised up on the cross was, in fact, a king, the one true king. But the inscription was a little bit off. See, John wants us to see something else here. He tells us that there's lots of people watching this crucifixion, aren't there? It's close by the city. There were people who could come out. This is a public event. So he tells us there's lots of people, but he also tells us that the inscription was written in multiple language, languages. It was not just written in Hebrew or Aramaic. It was also written in languages that the other nations would see and understand. It's almost like like John is tipping his cap to the idea that this man, though king of the Jews, truly, and we're going to look more about that and, and look more at that in just a second. This man, though king of the Jews, was not merely king of the Jews, but he is also the king of the nations. That Pilate, in a sense, had had a right to be concerned that this claim to kingship over the Jews was not just a threat to Caesar's rulership over the nation of Israel, but over the entire empire and the entire globe. This man, king, raised up to die was not just king over this this, uh, kind of vassal state in Israel, but in fact, king over all things. And this gets to the very heart of the good news. Jesus came as the promised Messiah, but in his fulfillment of God's plan and his promises to Israel, he is therefore worthy of the love and affection and the trust, not only of Israel, but of you and of me and of every person who has ever lived. We worship a Jewish king, a Jewish crucified savior who is king of the whole world. That's what the cross of Jesus is telling us. The second thing I want you to see here, we've already talked about it some, is the fulfillment that is going on in this passage. If you look in verse 23, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and then divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless and it was woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What I want you to see very simply here is that that John is going out of his way to give us some of the details of this crucifixion that are not just kind of accidental things, but they are actually meant to be fulfillment of the promises and the predictions that had been given to the people of Israel for many years before. This, this fulfillment of scripture in verse 24 is pulled right out of Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus himself quotes from Psalm chapter 22, kind of telling everybody, look back at that Psalm and see the truths of what's going on in this moment. The the one who is being rejected and persecuted in Psalm 22 was saying that his own clothes had been taken off of him and they were basically stolen and then just divided up. Uh, 
up among the, the, the soldiers there. And then there was one piece that they didn't, it was, it was a nice piece of clothing or it was reasonably like useful. And so rather than, uh, it, it seems likely that there were probably four soldiers at play here. So they each got like four aspects of clothing, but then there was one extra. And so we got two options, right? Every parent knows this, okay? If we're gonna fight over it, what are we gonna do? We're just gonna chop it up and give it to everybody. But these are not children, they are adults, they're reasonable people, and so instead of just cutting up the, the, uh, this reasonably nice piece of clothing, they say, let's, let's just cast lots for it. And so in doing so, uh, uh, John says, this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Look again in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, and notice what John says, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This, again, is a reference to Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. Uh, John is again saying, what's happening here on the cross, has, this, is, this ought not catch us off guard. This is something that we've been looking for and anticipating for hundreds of years. But John, is, he, just doesn't, he doesn't trust us to make the connections, does he? Someone has actually noticed that as you walk through John's gospel, John gets more and more explicit of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that happens in Jesus' life the closer and closer you get to the cross. And now when we're at the cross, it's almost like line after line after line after line is him saying, do you see? Do you see what's happening here? In the, in the Shaddix household, we have a, a, a tradition around birthdays. And that is, it's kind of a sick tradition, we hide the presents, okay? Uh, so whoever gets, uh, whoever gets the presents, kids, if you're a member of the Shaddix household and you want presents on your birthday, you gotta go searching for them, okay? We're not just serving them up for you, okay? You've gotta go, go look for them. But with our younger children, it's, it, they need a little bit of help. And so what we'll often do is we'll do the kind of red light, not red light, warmer and colder thing, right? Where you start, they're wandering through the house and you're getting warmer and you're, you're getting colder and that kind of thing. But with the youngest children, even that, kind of metaphorical concept doesn't register, okay? You can say they're getting warmer, and she's like, no, I'm cold. You know, like, no, no, no. Okay, never mind. Uh, and so you have to start directing them, and so we just had a birthday. Uh, uh, my my third, uh, third, third child birthday just passed. She doesn't quite get this, and, uh, and so we're for like 15 minutes, warmer, colder, closer, farther, and all this kind of stuff, and at some point, we get to the end, and we're like, there's a door close by you. You should check that out. Still not getting it. And we're like, mercy, open that door right there. You know, this is the one. You want to open this door, okay? We are like, John is doing that for us in this passage. Throughout the, the, the gospel stories, there's dropping hints and there's all kinds of illusions and there's all kinds of you're getting closer and this is significant and all this kind of stuff. When we get to the cross, John is saying, pay attention to these things. He's here. No more beating around the bush, no more suggestions, no more illusions. This is the man who is fulfilling all our hopes and dreams. This is the man hanging on the cross with these kind of accidental details, suffering, being shamed and isolated. This is the man, and we as the readers, we have to pay attention. We understand that Jesus Christ came to fulfill what God had promised all those years ago. 
Every promise, every illusion, every foreshadowing that the Old Testament scriptures had given us saying there was a seed that's gonna come. There's gonna be a prophet greater than Moses. There's gonna be a king to sit on David's throne forever. There's gonna be a righteous branch. There's gonna be a root. There's gonna be a, 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 a suffering servant. There's gonna be a shepherd. And, and over and over and over and over again, we read this and we say, where is the man? Where is the man? Where is the fulfillment? Where is this one? And John is saying the fulfillment is here on the cross. He is the fulfillment of all of their longings and all of our longings. Consider his kingship. Consider the fulfillment that he brings. Consider also his humility and his humanity. Verse 25, which I skipped over just a second ago, the the soldiers, they divvied up the, the cloths But standing by the cross, in verse 25, uh, the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, and he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. There's a lot going on here that we don't have time to unpack. We see the, the ongoing importance of women in the story of Jesus. We see the, the kind of highlighting of, of his mother in particular. Jesus' mother features prominently in many of the gospel accounts. And the narratives often begin with her willingness to receive from the Lord whatever he wills. And at the, the beginning of the gospel stories, that is a blessing of carrying the child. And now her willingness to receive from the Lord whatever he wills is being pushed to the other, utter brink because it seems that what the Lord wills is to take her child. And yet, even as we've been instructed to look at his kingship and to, to look at the, the fulfillment of prophecy that he brings, John doesn't want us to lose the humanity of Jesus. Here is the mystery that this is not just God dying on the cross, this is the God who took on flesh and became man. And even on the cross when Jesus is fulfilling prophecy and he's, he's obeying to the uttermost and he's receiving the wrath of God and the punishment of sins, he, is not, he never ceases to be a man. He never ceases to be one of us in his suffering. And so he looks and he sees his his mother and his care for his earthly mother never goes away to the extent that he looks at one of the disciples, presumably John, who is standing nearby and says, it's now your responsibility to take care of her because my work here is done. I love the humility and the humanity of Christ. I mean, how easy would it have been for him just to, on the cross, be like, I'm dealing with cosmic things here, okay? The wrath of God being poured out on me, please don't interrupt. And yet, he looks down, and as he always does, I mean, isn't it amazing how Jesus always is able to accomplish his salvific purposes and then look out on the crowds and have compassion on them? And here he looks at his own mother and he never departs being her son. And he gets to say, I'm gonna take care of you. Not just in your eternal sense, I'm not just dying for your sins, I'm not just securing your eternity. I know life is about to get hard because you're a widow and now that your caregiver is about to pass away and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna backfill with the apostle. 
I love his, humi- his humility and his humanity that we get to see in the Lord Jesus on display here. Not just his humanity and the fact that he can die, but his humanity in the sense that he's got these relationships and he just, he loves them. And friends, isn't it good news to know that the Lord Jesus Christ did not, he was not distracted by his cosmic role He was not distracted by his grandiose plans. I'm accomplishing salvation to where he forgets to look at the individual cares and concerns of the people around him and he says, I still care about that. That's good news for you and me, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus who right now is standing at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us on our behalf, cares about the things that you're going through and I'm going through. He cares about us. He has compassion for us. He is, in a very real sense, one of us. Consider his his kingship, his his fulfillment. Consider his humanity. Consider the sacrifice. Consider his sacrifice. In verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the second place in the passage where we see this kind of finished language. You also see it in verse 28. There's some kind of sense of accomplishment that John seems to see in the the crucifixion. Jesus' work was done. What was done? What was finished? He was still alive at at that point, but he'd seen that everything was finished. And I think, I think as we read, John continues to give us some direction. He, he, he wants to tell the story and wants to show us what was accomplished. And so you see, in, starting in verse 31, he, he tells us by means of the events that happened. Since it was, verse, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. And if you're not familiar with crucifixion, which I hope you're not, uh, the, 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 one of the great challenges of crucifixion was breathing. And so you would use your legs to keep propping up because you're, you're just kind of sunk over on yourself. And so you have to keep pushing up so you can breathe. And so breaking legs was a, was a way of preventing you from being propped up and it therefore would lead to a, a quicker suffocation. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. After breaking the legs of the other two who had not yet died, they come to Jesus and they realize it's finished. The work's done here, and so just to kind of make sure, they don't need to speed up death, they just need to ensure it, and so instead of breaking his legs, they, they stab his side, and out comes blood and water, and we're not going to get into the anatomy, but that's not like totally unreasonable. So they stab him, and then jumping down to verse 36, once again, John quotes the Old Testament to show how Jesus is fulfilling what they should have expected. It says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John sees in the bones and the piercing another fulfillment. The reference, the the, the quotation that John is probably alluding to regarding the bones probably comes from a combination of Psalm chapter 34, verse 20, but also Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. 
you're not familiar with what the, the Bible, Exodus chapter 12 is the institution of the Passover. The instruction in Exodus chapter 12 of the thing whose legs ought not be broken, whose bones ought not be broken, was a lamb. A Passover lamb that was meant to be a sacrifice on behalf of the household that says instead of one of the children in this household dying, a lamb is gonna die instead. A substitute sacrifice would take the place of the people and thereby provide salvation. And John reaches all the way back and says, remember the sacrifice that you've been celebrating, the Jewish people have been celebrating for generations and how you weren't supposed to break the bones? That wasn't just some passing comment. It was to, rem- it was to point you forward and you to look at this man hanging on a cross and say, there is the lamb. Bones unbroken, sacrificed for the people. John wants us to look on this man whose bones are intact and realize this reminds me of something. This reminds me of all the Passover lambs who've ever been killed for my salvation. And as the author of Hebrews says, this is the perfect and final sacrifice. The one on the cross was the last sacrifice needed. It was the the lamb offered once for all. Even John the Baptist, when Jesus is coming onto the scene, do do you remember how he introduced Jesus? Here's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He wants us to look on the man Jesus, and find there the sacrifice for your sake and for mine. And he doesn't want us to miss it. He wants us to see in this moment, in the completion of Jesus's work, as he yields up his spirit, he bows his head. The work of the cross is completed, and now you and I, friends, we've got to do something with it, which is why he interjects in verse 30, in, in verse 35 there, with this kind, of, this kind of parentheses, he who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about himself. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is not, that he is telling the truth. Why? So that you might believe. He's telling us, look at the sacrifice. Look at the lamb who is being offered. Look at the one who is dying in your place and trust him. That's what you do with this, friends. If you're here for some reason on a Friday afternoon, maybe you're new to the Bible, you're new to the gospel, you're new to the church, you're new to Christianity, here's the thing that is for you today. Jesus Christ was crucified despite having no sin and no guilt in and of himself as a sacrificial lamb to take on punishment that he did not deserve, that you deserve, that I deserve, that everyone else deserves, and it is being held out to us. And John, the gospel writer, is saying, I want you to understand his sacrifice that you may believe. Friends, you can be forgiven. You can have your sins taken away. You can have your security for eternity locked up if you trust this Jesus. He is for you. So much so, he loves you so much that he would even go to the most gruesome death that humans have ever conceived of and he would receive the most terrible punishment of having the the just judgment of God against him so that it doesn't have to come against you. 
That means the God who created you, you can have a right and corrected, healthy relationship with him. Despite your sin, despite your faults, despite your failures. Why? Because of the sacrifice of the man, Jesus Christ. That is the good news of Good Friday. How is it that a bunch of, bunch of people throughout history could look at something, such a ruthless event and say, that's good news, that's why? Because the man who was crucified was crucified for you and for me. So I want you to see his sacrifice in in this event. And lastly, I just want you, I just want to notice, I want you to notice, this is gonna be real brief. I just want you to see the grace that is on display in this, this account that is also for you and for me as we move into verse 38. It's it's the story of it's the story of Jesus' burial. He's he's been killed now. And in verse 38, it says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, and John goes out of his way to show the weakness of two men. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. You know why? For fear of of what others would think or do, think about or do to him. Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. That's where the events end, but I just want you to notice that he goes out of his way to point out these two guys who throughout the story are are shown to be weak, shown to be scared, shown to be timid, ashamed even, and yet he shows them having an element of redemption. And it's amazing how much of the, the rest of the Gospel of John is, is filled with like redemption stories, of restoration stories, of the, the forgiveness and the sacrifice that Jesus accomplishes for people is not just some idea thing, but he actually reaches down in the lives of people who have turned away from him and seeing them restored. You see it in part with these two guys, Joseph and Nicodemus. We're gonna see it with Thomas. You're gonna see it with Peter. Multiple times in just a few short chapters, we get this picture that Jesus is in the business of restoring people. He's in the business of of redeeming and rescuing and forgiving and receiving. Friend, that, if you are in Christ, is your story and that is my story. Good Friday allows us to be restored. All the brokenness that you have, have chased after and experienced and lived in The cross means Jesus can restore it. And friend, if you feel right now, if you're you're wrapped up in brokenness, you've been trying and trying and trying to rescue yourself and chase after some kind of self-improvement and it just won't, won't take, it won't work. We've got good news for you on Good Friday. Jesus is in the business of restoring people. And we would love to talk with you about what it looks like to experience this restoration, this forgiveness, this salvation that we have all received. And all of that is possible because the king of the Jews went to the cross 
was isolated, was crushed, was humiliated for you and for me. Praise God. Praise God for what he's done on Good Friday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and thank you for, despite its awfulness, God, thank you for the cross. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for his humility, for his sacrifice, for his kingship. God, may it be that even as we meditate, continue to meditate on this awful event this weekend, Lord, you would stir our hearts with thanksgiving and with joy, knowing that you have done for us what we could not. pray this in Jesus' name, amen.